You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Real estate media headlines have been filled with a word that's probably familiar to you, syndications and its cousin, crowdfunding. And while syndications have been around for decades, crowdfunding is a more recent phenomenon introduced by the Jumpstart Our Business Startups, or Jobs Act, of 2012. Both syndications and crowdfunding are a way for companies to raise private money for their projects while offering investors a way to passively participate in deals that they might not be able to do on their own. But with so much money flowing, it's becoming increasingly important that you know what you're doing so you don't lose it, or worse, someone else's. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I have been to a lot of events lately where I've met people who are brand new investors and are now syndicating deals. One man had been investing in real estate for about three years and had already raised over $8 million for his latest multifamily project, and he was just about to syndicate another one when he asked if he could partner with us. I asked a few basic questions about the pro forma, and it became really clear that he was only using blue sky projections. He clearly had not looked at history to see that rents don't rise forever, even if it looks so nice on paper. He had also not accounted for rising property taxes and interest rates that would dramatically affect NOI. It is so important for syndicators and investors to keep in mind that we are at the late stage of this real estate cycle. The massive growth we've seen in real estate over the past 10 years won't likely be the same over the next 10 years, and performance need to reflect that. So that's why I've invited our guest today, who's done a lot of syndications, and is going to talk to us about due diligence as investors and syndicators. Hunter Thompson is the managing principal of Cashflow Connections, a private equity firm that's helped more than 250 accredited investors. We're going to talk about what major questions investors should ask when conducting due diligence on passive real estate investments, and why the loan of a CRE investment deserves a ton of attention. Plus, we'll find out what causes CRE investments to go wrong and what you can do about it and how to underwrite opportunities for achievable results. So Hunter, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to have you come in here and give us a little insight on the market today and some other kinds of assets that we don't normally talk about here, which would be self-storage, mobile home parks, and syndications in general. So first, tell me about you and how you know about these things. Yeah, sure. So I think for a lot of people, the big turning moment was 2008. That's something we've heard before. But for me, it was the opposite. I was very interested in financial matters when 2008 happened. When that took place, I saw the blood in the streets. I was very compelled by the opportunity, particularly being able to invest in stocks that were trading below their cash value. Now, this is kind of the strategy I pursued for about two years in pursuit of just being able to retire later in life. The problem is that when people invest, they're looking for a couple of things, cash flow to pay off expenses, predictability of outcome, et cetera. And I was starting to question that thesis and question that vehicle right when the European debt crisis happened. And this is when it was very similar to 2008, but in Europe, the European banks froze up and this created crazy volatility in the US markets. So I remember watching CNBC and they were talking about the German bond yields. And they were saying if the bond yields went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. But if they stayed above 7%, the S&P 500 is going to be fine. And I just remember thinking, how is it the case that 
the German bond yields are playing any role in my financial well-being, let alone a significant role so that people on CNBC are talking about it every single day. <laughs> that was just kind of my last straw moment. And I really started focusing on real estate. And luckily, real estate moves a little bit more slowly than stocks. So I was able to take advantage of those price movements, focusing on simple investments and moving my way to commercial and syndications pretty quickly thereafter. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? I would feel so out of control if my whole portfolio was in the stock market because something overseas is happening that's going to affect me and my investments here. It would, it would, uh, I couldn't take that kind of stress. So let's talk about, let's start with self-storage. A lot of people think that's sexy <laughs> um, or exciting, even though it's exciting because it's boring, I suppose. It's simple. Are there still deals out there in self-storage? And if so, where and what? Yeah, so I've found that the lack of competition in some of those niche transactions is a really good green light. The problem is there's always challenges when you have big picture theses like that. So similar to someone saying, well, they're not building any more land, so real estate's a good investment. Well, <laughs> I know plenty of people that have lost money with that thesis. Having said that, there's a couple of data points I just find really compelling about self-storage. Most importantly, looking at where we are right now in the cycle, I think it's really critical to focus on asset classes where there's significant demand during recessions. And so with self-storage, the argument is that people use the product when they're going through some kind of economic change, and that change can be brought on by recessions very frequently. So you think about people losing their jobs, people moving home with their parents unexpectedly, people having to change jobs or move. Or downsizing. It's incredibly common, especially with the baby boomers, 10,000 of them, quote, retiring every day with very little savings. And so all of that is very common and even more common during recessions. And that's one of the things I find compelling about the mobile home park sector. I think that's easily explained. The worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. But the challenge with that, and there are many challenges with that thesis, is that that's half the picture, right? The demand is only part of it. You also have to look at a many, many, many other things, including the loan, most importantly. And I have kind of seven due diligence processes that I can kind of walk us through that'll give investors a really good understanding of what questions they should be thinking about and, and structurally speaking, what they should be taking seriously when going through a self-storage investment or any other uh, syndicated investment. That's something that I can kind of walk you through, if that makes sense. Let's do it. So there are seven, and this is my perspective on from the most important to the least important. Now, they're all important, but I think you want to start with the sponsor, number one. Number two is the on-site manager. Number three is the loan and the financing portion. Number four is the property pro forma and the property previous performance. Number five is the market. Number six is the property-specific due diligence. And number seven is the legal documents. Now, I know some attorneys out there may say, how in the world is the case that the legal documents are the last and least important? Well, it's all about the sponsor. If you are considering investing in a syndication and you're thinking about investing twenty-five or fifty or even $100,000, anyone that has been involved in the legal process knows that you can easily spend fifty dollars or $100,000 in pursuit of getting that $100,000 returned. So that's the reason. Now, it's still on the list, but that's the reason it's the least important. And I can go through some of the details of each of those, but I think if you start looking at your due diligence process 
with those seven steps in mind, you're going to be in a good spot. In fact, you'll probably be better than 80% of the passive investors out there that are doing things more haphazardly. That is a really good point. You're right. If you invested $50,000 and lost it, it would cost you a few hundred thousand dollars to try to sue. Yeah, it's, it doesn't make sense. So I, I love that. I haven't heard that before. I agree with you. The number one most important thing I look for in any investment that we would be syndicating is the manager who, who is going to be operating and running this project. So what are some things you look for in the sponsor or the operator? So I think that number one, I mean, you want to look at track record, right? But that's everyone everyone says. So my key here is verifying the track record, taking one or two steps deeper into just seeing it on a spreadsheet. I want to make sure, here's a perfect example. When was the company founded in relation to the market cycle, right? It's not a deal killer if they founded the company in 2010. It just needs to be considered when you're looking at the overall return profile of their previous deals. Because a big portion of this that almost no one is talking about is that the Jobs Act in 2012 gave a lot of access to people that didn't have access to real estate deals before. So you have all these new investors, but simultaneously, you have a 10-year run-up in the market cycle. So all of these new investors that may have not had these processes in place, you get where I'm going with it. The returns may not be replicatable. Now, one of the things I also want to look at is references. I think a lot of investors may call other investors. And I think that's an important thing to do. But I find that you'll get much more interesting conversations from the third-party service providers. You can actually verify the claims they have. So if they say they've done a deal in Florida with this management company, you can call that management company or call that contracting company, have a conversation with them. What is it like to work with them? Will you work with them before? How did you originally find that it was to get in contact with them? And, and are the claims that they've made to you lining up with reality? Those conversations alone will give you a really good sense of what it's like to work with them. And you need to take that seriously because you're going to be stuck with them for the next 10 years if you do invest with them. Something else I think is a great tool is personal and business background checks. You can do this through an attorney or you can create your own via TLO or something like that. And you can run another check on properties that they claim to own, for example, just to verify that their claims are lining up with reality. So if a sponsor says, go to 5550, this address, I own this $50 million property. Here's a picture of it. Anyone can claim they own that property. So if you pull title or even preliminary title on that property, you just want to make sure that that property is owned by an LLC that shows up on the background check. And if it doesn't, you can always ask a question. But I think that those types of things are pretty simple stages of due diligence. It'll cost you a couple hundred bucks, but you'll definitely be able to sleep at night knowing you're not relying on the efficacy of the sponsor who is trying to solicit you as an investor. Yeah, it just reminds me of when I was a, a reporter, especially when I would do investigative reporting. You know, you, you just pick up the phone and you go talk to people. I mean, that's the key. Find out without anyone knowing what you're trying to do, you know, get the information you need. That's great. Or you can let people know what you're doing. Exactly. So we just went through the sponsor. That's just one. But don't worry, that's the bulkiest because it's the most important one. <laughs> it's the most important one. I've made that mistake. Yeah, where the biggest mistake you can make is even someone with a track record in something else. Like maybe they've been really, really successful in multifamily and now they want to do self-storage and you think, oh, it's the same thing. It's not. So I like to only work with people who have a track record in the exact thing that you're investing in. You touching on a great point. And another way that that can be misleading is if someone says that they've been involved in a billion dollars of transactions, you need to make sure that that previous billion dollars 
is under the same caliber of company that they currently operate under. So if they had previously worked at Goldman Sachs with 3,000 employees, and now they have a boutique firm with the lack of technological solutions that are placed that Goldman Sachs may have, that's a big difference. And again, it's not a deal killer. You just want to have it in your mind when you're going through that process. Absolutely. So number two is the on-site property manager. And I, I know that there's a lot to be said about who is actually effectuating these changes. But in my opinion, you can ask a couple of important questions to the sponsor to get a good understanding of how they're positioned in the market. Again, it's all about the sponsor. So one of the things that I look at is what's the software that the sponsor is using with the property manager? What does that interface look like? They don't have to send it to you every single month, but just get an understanding of how sophisticated the sponsor is and what level of transparency they have to the property on an on-site basis. Do they make ACH payments? You know, um, how do they source the property manager? Have they worked with the property manager before? Is it in the same market? Those couple of questions right there, they'll give you a good understanding, especially getting a printout of that software, just so you can see exactly what the sponsor is seeing on a monthly or quarterly basis. Good stuff. So number three is the loan. And I'm sure that you'll agree with me. This is something that is almost never talked about, and it is by far the most important part of protecting capital to the downside. Oh my gosh, I cannot agree more. And especially today when rates are probably going to increase. Exactly. And I'll put it this way, 99% of all the horror stories regarding real estate, especially those regarding loss of principal, is directly related to the loan. And the same percentage probably to getting the deal. You got the good deal because somebody else took on a bad loan. Exactly. Exactly. And so we need to take a close look at each loan that we're we're doing. Think about it this way. It's the majority of the capital stack. It's the majority of what's being invested in the deal. So if something goes wrong with that, you're going to have a major problem. But it's not as simple as maybe we've previously been led to believe. So I'll give you a perfect example. The loan to value is obviously very important. But going one step deeper, what is that loan to value based on? Is that an appraisal? Is that an after repaired value? As in, are you buying a property at a 90% loan to value and only after the capital expenditure is implemented? Is that loan to value going to decrease down to 70%? Those are all important questions to ask. Loan to purchase price is also important. I view loan to purchase price kind of as a, a worst case scenario, a true loan to value. There's no better market comp than the property itself. So if you're buying a property for 10 million and there's a $13 million loan, you know you're not in a good position, right? In terms of worst case scenario, right? And that, that, that those types of loans aren't taking place right now, but we may get to a point where they do again. And it's a major, major red flag. One another metric I want to look at is the debt service coverage ratio. Banks usually require something close to 1.2 or 1.25. And here's something else, the interest only period. So in commercial real estate, it's very common to have a period at the beginning of the loan. We usually have one to two years where the debt is only interest, only interest is owed. So the debt payments are smaller, and then the debt starts paying itself off, meaning paying itself down in years three, four, five, et cetera. Now, what I would say is that I used to think that having a one to two year interest only period was good no matter what else. But you can actually, as long as you're in late, like especially since we're late in the cycle, I have seen deals that are also very conservative with the five-year interest-only period. They just happen to have a very low loan-to-value. So what that means 
is that if you're looking at these metrics, it's important to look at all of them together to really understand the entirety of the loan portion, the loan term, the amortization schedule, the interest-only period, debt service coverage ratio. All of these metrics are important because it's going to play a big role in the way things go, especially if things go sideways. Oh, I'm so glad you're saying that. My biggest concern for people right now is they're getting into short-term loans. And when it comes to refi, the the rates will be higher and their NOI will be lower and they'll be stuck, uh, not able to refi unless they put more money into the deal. Exactly. I'm concerned for the investors. I'm excited for our investors (laughs) because it means (laughs) deals, right? Yeah. It's how the deals are created. But I mean, you bring up a good point. I'm I'm glad that your listeners are familiar enough with those terms to kind of follow along there. But the key is not enough investors are. And so it's important to really pay attention to those metrics um, all in all. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to the property performance and really the pro forma. So this is really simple enough. Really, when you're looking at due diligence in this stage, I think it's important to look at the trailing three-month or trailing 12-month financials and compare that to the one-year projections. This is something that it'll stick out like a sore thumb if there's a big difference. So you want to look at seasonality. Is the trailing 12 months, is the property highly seasonal? Do they account for that? in the first year of the financials and the projections. There's a big difference between something like the operating expense ratio. Let's say the operating expenses are going from 55% in the trailing 12 to 45% in year one. Again, that doesn't mean that's a deal killer. It's just a really important question to ask the sponsor. And the way they answer that question may reveal a lot about the way they're looking at the deal. I'll give you a perfect example. They may say, are they being aggressive? And they could say, well, we actually have two properties within five miles of this property, and they're all at 45%, and the vintage is the same, and the overall profile of the deal is the same. So we're confident we can get down to 45%. Or they may say, well, we're assuming that we're going to increase the property's rents by 10% because that's what the market is, and we're assuming that that's going to result in 45% expense ratio in year one. That could be problematic. So it's really important to kind of look at that stuff when looking at the previous performance, as well as the pro forma, and ask the question, ask three or four questions about that, and you'll be one of about 20 investors that has ever asked that sponsor that question. They'll be really happy to have you as an investor because they know that you're taking it seriously. Good stuff. Love it. Cool. So let's talk about the market. And now we're getting into the things that, again, this is all about the sponsor, right? This entire process is all about the sponsor. So it's really about getting a sense of if they're putting themselves in a position to deliver on their promises to you as an investor. But when it comes to the market specifically, really good things to ask the sponsor about are the diversity of employment. So I like to invest in markets that are at least half a million people or more in the major metro. Usually, this allows for diversity of employment. So when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about medical, educational, government, tech. Now, tech is interesting. You're going to get high-paying jobs But because of the fact that a lot of tech companies rely on VC funding, that has the potential to be a little bit cyclical. So I do want to see diversity even outside the tech. Hospitality is one that's very cyclical. We saw what happened in Vegas. The first thing that goes when markets correct is all the conferences stop. Everything puts on hold and all the travel stops. So if you're in a market that's very dependent on that, you may be investing in a highly cyclical market. This is one of many reasons why I don't I usually invest in hotels because they can present challenges. I know that a lot of people out there are making a lot of money in hotels. It just doesn't fit my particular investment thesis. Something else is just median household value or median income. 
And does that median income match up with the property type? If you have a C-class apartment in an area where the income is above 150000 may may struggle with that. But what's much more common is there's a property that is they're repositioning from a C-class to an A-class in a market that may not substantiate that. And so just looking at the overall income with the tenant base is important. You can also look at this in something like retail, right? Is there an area where there's a lot of families? Karate may be a really good match. Uh, Gucci, Prada, maybe not the best match in a low income area. So just matching up the market with the profile of the tenant base. And I think that'll get you in a good position in terms of the market as a whole. All right. What else? You're on a roll. I don't want to stop you. (laughs) Okay. I know you've got plenty of input on these, but you're letting me go. We can kind of sum it up in a little bit and I'm sure you can, you can jump in as much as possible. (laughs) So when it comes to the property itself, again, this is something that I just want to make sure it can substantiate the goals of the investment, which is the predictability of the return, the predictability of the outcome. So number of units is really important. You mentioned cell storage earlier. I think that 400 units, for example, is the minimum that we want to invest in. That's usually about 50,000 square feet or so. With multifamily, people usually talk about 100 units. With office or retail, I like to see 10 to 13 tenants. Again, that's just my personal perspective. It's one of the reasons I don't usually invest in office because I find it challenging to find buildings that, let's say, have more than five or six tenants or so. Very common. Uh, Senior living, I like to have 100 beds, for example. Something else when it comes to the property, the physical property itself, uh, is the daily travel vehicles. Um, This is something you can pull from the census in your particular market. I start to get a little uncomfortable if it's below 20,000, but what's important about that number is you need to make sure that the daily travel vehicles can actually be seen from the road. Because if you are under an underpass and there's 80,000 daily travel vehicles, you're not going to get the same kind of results as if you were investing in a property where people had to literally drive by the property. So I really, I think that's important. Those are just some of the things that it comes to the physical property. But again, I think if you just start thinking about this in this structure, you'll come up with your own questions that will help you all along the way in terms of understanding the overall profile of the deal. Yeah, just you got to, like I said, get out there, walk around, talk to people. One of my favorite things is just going and talking to neighbors, you know, and asking what, how do they like the neighborhood and what do they know about the history of the area and, and so forth. Just casual conversations or the local coffee shop. Yes, you will be shocked if you just have a conversation with the tenants too. Yes. How long have you lived here? What is the relationship with the management company? Do you feel like it's safe? Is there anything you would do if you own the property to make it better? Unbelievable due diligence will come as a result of that. Now, that does require flying to the property for some of you that may not be, you know, economically viable, but at least you can ask the sponsor what their answers were because I'm sure that the sponsor did that type of interview and you get a ton from that because everyone is in a position to complain. As long as the, the property manager isn't around, they will unveil all the problems you could possibly imagine with the property. You know, what's funny on proformas these days is how people aren't necessarily looking at performance, at least prior, they're looking at what they hope will happen. And there's a big difference. Exactly. It's, it's just amazing. So many proformas have appreciation numbers in there you know, in their calculations, or they only account for rental increases and not the possibility of just a, you know, a stabilized or, or even declining market. So anyway, I, I think you've got to have your stress test 
And if the numbers work in either direction, then you know you've got a winner. If they only work in the direction of up, then you need to understand that we are at the tail end of a very long growth market. 100%. Yeah, the next 10 years will not be like the last 10 years. And that's probably the most important thing people need to understand. Exactly, exactly. Those cap rate compressions that we've all experienced and enjoyed mathematically cannot take place again because we will be sub-interest rate levels. That doesn't make any sense. People wouldn't buy real estate with debt if that was the case. So it just can't take place. And then we do have one more, the last one, the least important, but the most important to sometimes, <laughs> which is the legal document. So yeah. can I just run through a oh, couple of those real quick? Yeah, maybe cool. I'm spending way too much money on mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, me, me too. It's super important for sponsors as well. So with the legal documents, I'll tell you what the bad news is first. All right. You have to read them. Oh, yeah. Know. That's the worst. <laughs> That's the problem. So anything I say is not going to help you at all unless you read them. And the challenge is you have to read more than one to get a sense of what's out there, to get a sense of which one's more favorable for the sponsor, which one's more favorable for the investor. You have to read a bunch. And they're all different. It, yes, they're all different. The Structurally, they can be very different, but you'll start to get an understanding of what the industry standard is. So then when you see something weird, it will stick out to you. And that's mm. what the key is. You want to avoid that or at least ask questions about that. So, you know, I'm looking forward to keep it as simple as possible. For those of you that haven't reviewed a PPM before, usually somewhere between 150 and 200 pages. So I'm not going to go through every single provision and what you should watch. But generally speaking, the quality of work, the fairness to investors, the voting rights. Here's one that is absolutely critical. Additional capital calls. So we do not invest in any deals that require additional capital that's mandatory. Now, you'll see that there's varying degrees of how you can handle something like this because it does happen. You want to have a mechanism in place to facilitate additional capital in the event that it's needed. But all of those words I just said, people take this part very seriously. So how is it established is if it's needed? If the manager has the option to take on a loan, is there a maximum interest rate that they can provide or get? Um, did the, the investors get to be the first ones that provide that capital or are they allowed to go to outsource sources immediately? So those are just a couple of things. And I can go down a list of a million things. The waterfall is important, of course, things like that. But the key is you have to read them. Make sure that the expectation that you have in the executive summary is lining up with the legal documents. And that's a big, big factor. Um, it will take a lot of practice. It will take some attorney guidance. but if you guys go through the seven steps that I just talked about, even if you ask one question about each thing, you're going to be really well positioned for the future, which is all about protecting of capital rather than maximizing return. Excellent. Oh, and I couldn't agree more. Read it. And if you don't understand it, ask. We just had a, about a three-hour lunch with uh, one of our potential partners who wanted to structure things a certain way and I didn't quite understand it and we were drawing pictures and <laughs> looking at the waterfall. <laughs> the flow chart. Yeah, the flow chart, everything going over the ins and outs and finally we landed somewhere. But make sure that if you don't understand it, you ask questions and don't worry about looking stupid. Most people don't understand any of this. So the fact that you're even reading it is a big, is a big deal. Totally. All right. Well, we are out of time. Hunter, thank you so much for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. Yeah, Kathy, it's an honor to be on. Thanks again. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. I hope this was helpful. If you'd like to find out more about what we have going on, you can check out our crowdfunding site at realwealthcrowd.com. 
I'm Kathy Fedke, and thanks again for joining me here on The Real Well Show. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.